Good morning to everyone and welcome to The Well here at STSA where we are in part four of a series called I Am. We're for the past three weeks and we're wrapping up here today. What we are doing is looking at Jesus in his own words because we've talked about this throughout this series. There's a lot of people out there with a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is and blog guys and YouTube guys and everyone has their own opinions about who Jesus is. So we're going to him. We're saying, Jesus, tell us who you are in your own words. And what we see the past several weeks, and we're going to conclude here today, is seven times in the Gospel of St. John, Jesus spoke and said, I am, and he filled in the blank. I am, and he told us who he is. And the series is titled, I am, subtitled, So Who Are You? The reason that subtitle is because every time Jesus said, I am, he then told us who we are. Okay, because all of his I am statements had a similar structure. I am blank, therefore you are blank. Or I am blank, therefore you have blank, or you have access to blank, or you can blank. From week one, if you remember, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And therefore, whoever believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. You see, I am, therefore you are. Then we saw Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. And if I'm the good shepherd means you're the dumb sheep, but the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So his I am the good shepherd means something for me as the sheep. Last week, Father Abraham talked about, I am the vine. I am the true vine. And then therefore for you, if you abide in me and I abide in you, then you shall bear much fruit. In other words, the I am statements, this series, the goal is to show us not just who he is, but who we are meant to be and who we can be and the life that we can achieve in Christ when he is inside of us. Because I'll tell you something, something that I see that makes my heart sad, and I'm sure it makes the heart of God sad as well, is just too many people today who believe in Christ. Too many people say, I believe in him, I have faith in him. But we live as if he's dead. We live as if he was alive, he did the whole crucifixion, resurrection, and then he's gone, and now it's just like, we just kind of communicate with him maybe on Sundays, kind of show our face, so it's like, hey, remember me, like on the judgment day, remember me, like I look familiar. Or this, this idea that it's just for something, we just suffer through life and hopefully he'll reward us one day down the road. That's not what life with Christ is all about. Believing that life with Christ is just about avoiding judgment when all is said and done, that's like thinking that the point of marriage is just that you don't have to file taxes as a single person anymore. You get to file jointly. Yes, that is one of the benefits of being married, but there's so much more. And same thing with our relationship with Christ. It's about a relationship. It's about an intimacy. It's about a shared life together. Okay, that's what marriage is all about. And that's what our relationship with Christ is supposed to be about. So that's what this series is, is that when you have me in your life, I'm not just a statue you hang on the wall and you go like this when you pass by me. I'm not just someone that you visit on Sundays. I'm not just someone that you're scared of that he's going to judge you one day down the road. I'm alive and I'm in your life. And this is what you have access to. And today's I am, the final one might be the most game-changing, life-changing of all the I am's there is. comes to us from John chapter 8, verse 12. Read this with me all together. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Raise your hands. How many people, okay, in this room when they were younger, hopefully when they're younger, maybe currently, scared of the dark? Anyone scared of the dark when they were younger? Okay, the rest of you are liars. Everyone was scared of the dark, okay? When you're scared of the dark... There's nothing wrong with being embarrassed about, okay? All of us, when we were younger, being scared of the dark, 
And it's just something you just have to go through, but there's certain ways around it. Okay, you remember, you can, you remember this when you were younger. As long as you followed certain rules in the dark, you would be safe. Okay, so for example, the easiest one, when you go to sleep at night in your bedroom, and you have to turn off the lights. That's when the monsters come out, okay, when it's dark in your bedroom. So there's two rules you have to follow to make sure that you are protected from the monsters and or boogeymen if you had those in your neighborhood as well. Rule number one, help me out, the closet door had to be shut, shut, tightly shut, because somehow the monsters who could eat us and eat our house can't turn the knob when it's closed. They can push it, but they can't turn it, so the door has to be shut. But if the door is open, then you are fair game for those monsters. The other place that monsters would be, they'd be in the closet. Where would the other place the monsters would be? Under the, under the bed. They'd always be under the bed. You don't know how they fit in there, but they were snug, okay, and then they kind of expanded when they came out. So therefore, when you were sleeping in the bed, was this, I don't know if it was just me, you had to make sure that nothing was hanging over the side, okay? That all hands and feet must stay inside the bus at all times, ladies and gentlemen, because if you had a toe hanging over, they would suck you down into their little monster world, and then you'd be done with. That's why, again, I don't know if this is just me, maybe it's just me, but by the laughs, it's not just me. If you had to get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you had to get up to go to the bathroom. You couldn't just step out of your bed because they would suck you. So what you had to do is to get over and then you had to, to hurl yourself back in there, right? Because if you just went down, the monsters, you know how it goes. But there was one thing with all those scary monsters. There was one thing that as soon as you did this one thing, all the monsters disappeared. One thing, one very simple thing. You do this one thing, no more monsters, no more fear, no more nothing. What is that one thing? Light. Light kills darkness. Light kills fear. Light kills anything bad. Because once the light came on, when there was no light, it was scary and I'm not going to make it and this is the worst thing ever. Light goes on and all disappears. And Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He's not talking about monsters. He's talking about something much more powerful. But he is the light of the world. And this idea of Jesus' light, from page one of Scripture to all the way to the final page, you see this concept of light and darkness, light and darkness. Jesus, the, the, gospel, or the epistle of St. John, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light. God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. God is light. Devil, we call him the prince of darkness. God is light. Devil is darkness. That's why some people sometimes ask me like, you know, but what happens after you die? And what happens, you know, and all I say is if you die, okay, I don't know much about it. I never died before, but if you die, one thing I know is go towards the light. Okay, that's what everyone says. You'll see on one side light, one side dark, go to the light. Don't inquire, okay? Don't, don't investigate. You see light, you go to light because God is light. Devil is dark. St. Paul had a similar experience on his journey on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That light was Christ. Christ came to him as light. What do we say in the creed? We say that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He is blank of blank, light of light. What do we say right before the creed? We say we exalt you. We're talking about St. Mary. We exalt you, O mother of the true light. St. Mary is the mother of light because Christ is light. We say in the liturgy that we who were sitting in 
Darkness and the shadow of death. He did not abandon us to the end. We were sitting in darkness and shadow of death. So this idea of God as light is all throughout Scripture. But when Jesus says, I'm light, he's not talking about monsters. He's not talking about protecting us from monsters. He's talking about us living courageous, victorious, no guilt, no fear, no shame kind of lives. The kind of lives that his disciples, guys named Peter, James, and John, the early church, those guys lived with light. And no matter what the darkness was in the world, sometimes today we think the world is so bad, the world is so bad. Hey, I got news for you. When, 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 when the disciple, when John wrote about how he's light, the world was a pretty bad place at that time. It's probably much worse than it is today. But there was no darkness that that light of Christ couldn't defeat because he is the light of the world. I'm telling you, this image of Christ as light, we're going to look at it here today, is the most, one of the most powerful images when you understand it. And what makes it even more powerful, John chapter 8, verse 12, where he said, I'm the light of the world, is the conclusion of an interaction that Jesus had with a certain individual. And when you understand the verse in the context of the interaction or the story, it has that much more power. It's not a standalone verse. Jesus didn't just show up and say, by the way, I'm the light of the world. Something happened before them. We're going to read this story together. And for some people who've heard this story before, John chapter 8 is a story of a woman caught in adultery and Jesus' interaction with her. And the reason why I tell you that is because I'm sure that most people, maybe not all, but I'm saying the majority of us have probably read that story or heard that story at one point in time. If you haven't heard that story before, you're in for a treat. Because when you get to see this story for the first time, and I'm going to invite those who may have heard it before to erase it from your minds, and I want to invite you to see this interaction with Jesus for the very first time, to walk through it, even though you know how it's going to end, to walk through it and allow the fullness of Christ's compassion and love and the fullness of his light to enter into our hearts and minds as if it's the first time. Okay? So, story, woman caught in adultery, she interacts with Jesus, but before she interacts with Jesus, she has to interact with some other people. We'll pick up the story in John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. It says, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, he being Christ, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. We are two verses into this story and we hit the ground running. Already, we got some action right here. We have a woman who was caught in adultery, as verse three said, and then verse four adds a little bit of extra detail for the imaginative minds, caught in the very act. Look, if I were to tell you how many people want to meet Jesus, I would say, raise your hands. How many people want to meet Jesus this way? Of all the ways that you don't want to meet Jesus, this would, I would say this would be at the top of the list. Like, meet Jesus, you know, after communion. That's a great way. Meet Jesus after confession. Hey, why not? Meet Jesus after helping that old lady across the street or doing something nice to that, that mean guy, whatever. Meet Jesus after that. But this woman meets Jesus in the worst imaginable way. Remember the Southwest commercials? Want to get away? Remember those commercials? <laughs> okay. This is like, yeah, want to get away. Like, I'll meet Jesus anytime, place, but not like this. Because what you have here is a woman committing adultery, and somehow the Pharisees caught her and brought her to Jesus. I don't know if there was like, they had a sting operation, okay? I don't know how they knew, like, but it says right here, it didn't catch them on the way in. 
It didn't catch them as they were warming up. It caught them at the very act. And then you start to think to yourself, I wonder what it was like for her. I'm sure they didn't knock politely at the door and say, let me have a minute. Busted in the door. There she is. Probably not wearing anything. They grab her. Of course, they grab only her. Who did they not grab? Yeah, who cares about the guy? <laughs> Leave the guy. We want the girl. They grab the girl. She's probably not wearing anything, so she probably got grabbed. They probably grabbed her by her hair. Grabbed her and started to drag her out. And maybe if she was lucky, maybe she grabbed the sheet on the way out, maybe to try to cover some parts of herself. They drag her through the streets and they're like an angry mob of guys with this woman just in the worst imaginable state. And they throw her in the middle of the circle, a circle of guys, says, and they had set her in the midst, meaning a group of, of, of Pharisees standing all around with their judgment and their sticks and their big old hats and their beards and their robes and whatever it may be. I know I just kind of described myself without the stick, but, but intimidating and these scary guys and they throw her in the midst and just imagine, just imagine with me how she's feeling. There she is, caught, naked, shame, guilt, earth, open up and swallow me. Like I'll pay if somebody could just kill me now, please, I will pay you to just kill me right now. Because she's looking out there and she sees angry faces. And maybe there's, some, maybe there's a crowd that's now attracted. Maybe her next door neighbor. Maybe her boss. Maybe her mom. Maybe her dad. Maybe your kids. Looking at her. Horrible. Shame, 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 shame. Verse 5. It says, now Moses, this is the Pharisees still speaking. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. This woman, worst possible state. She's about to interact with three forms of Christ, so to speak. She's going inter to interact with the law of Christ, the love of Christ, and the light of Christ. Okay, she can do that in order. So we're going to start here in the law. And that's why it says, Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. So she interacts with the law of Christ. And the law of Christ says what? Law of Christ reveals our guilt. The law of Christ says she is guilty. Now let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. I know this is a hard question, so think before you answer. The Pharisees bring her to Jesus and say, she's guilty, she should be stoned. Are they right or are they wrong? Are they right or are they not right? They're right. They're right. Yeah, the guy should be as well, okay? And actually, and I'll show you. I'll show you for those, wait, just stick with me right here for a second. Are they right, she should be stoned? Yeah, she should be stoned. Is she guilty? She's 100% guilty. See, we don't like to focus on this because we'd rather focus on the Pharisees are mean, and they are mean. And the Pharisees are judgmental, and they are judgmental. And the Pharisees are hypocrites, and they are hypocrites. But none of that changes the fact that she's guilty. Deuter or Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. I could got you several verses, but this one says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Okay, so they left the man... But according, so my point is to say they were sexist and they only cared about punishing the woman, but God says both of them are equally guilty. That wasn't implemented that way, but in God's eyes, it's both the same. Surely be put to death. Who gave us this law? Who gave us this? Who gave us the book of Leviticus? 
Moses. And where did Moses get it from? Got it from God. You say, okay, well, that was a one-off. That was a fluke. Moses had a rough day in Leviticus 20. I'll get you another verse. Deuteronomy chapter 22. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. There you go. Both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate to that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. So here's my question. Is she guilty or not guilty? She's guilty. A hundred percent. I don't want us to overlook this. Because again, before we rush into those guys are mean, they are mean. But she's wrong. She's guilty. I'm sorry I'm about to say she deserves death. She deserves to be punished. And I'm really sorry I'm about to say, so do you. And so do I. Because we've all broken God's laws. See, our problem is we think of ourselves as good. You know why? Because we compare ourselves to people who are worse. We compare ourselves. So we say like, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but you should see what he did. You should see what she said behind someone. So we know we're not perfect, but relatively speaking, because we like to compare. So like I sinned, but not as bad as they sinned. So I'm really okay. But God doesn't compare. You know that, right? God doesn't compare. God doesn't say, all of you line up and we'll just take the top 20%. God doesn't grade that way. God looks at each one of us as an individual. And each one of us as an individual is actually compared, not just, I'm sorry, not to one another, but who are we compared to? To him. And you say, hey, Father Anthony, you're being a little bit tough right here. It's about to be summer and Memorial Day. Go easy on us. The weather is nice. It's sunny outside. It's very judgmental. Very, it's not me. Like I wish if it was me, you could just ignore what I'm saying. But look what James chapter 2, verse 10, in case you're thinking it was Old Testament, New Testament. James 2.10, whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Of all? I made one mistake, I'm guilty of all? Yeah, that's kind of how it works. Think of it this way. Let's say you find a homeless person in the street and they have all kinds of clothes that's dirty and tattered and yucky and yucky, okay? And it's just all kinds of messed up. And then they are eating a hot dog and they spill a little ketchup on their shirt, a little ketchup spot right there. Not that big a deal. You probably wouldn't even notice it amidst all the other dirt. And then let's say you have a bride on her wedding day in a beautiful white dress, perfect, spotless, and a little bit of ketchup. Would you notice that? Oh, it'd be the talk of the town. Because you had a hot dog before the church. Like you can't even imagine it. Who would have a hot dog on the day of their wedding? Because when it's the same stain, but when you compare it to dirt, what I'm saying is our comparison is not this. Our comparison is this. And that's why the law of Christ says, sorry to say, but you're guilty. So let's make this even more practical. Since you already hate my guts, let me make you hate me even more. I won't make you do raise hands because I probably will get no hands raised on this one. But how about head nods? Okay, just head nods so that we no one looking around, just each nod in their own head. Nod your head if you've ever told a lie in life. You ever told a lie? Yeah, all told lies. Nod your head if you've ever used God's name in vain, said a curse word. Yeah. Nod your head if you've ever had a lustful thought or a lustful uh, uh, look or something like that. And for those who are not nodding your heads, please see question number one about the lying, okay? <laughs> In case you didn't nod your head on that one. Bottom line, sorry to say, bottom line, forgive me. If you've ever lied, you're a liar. If you've used God's name in vain, you're a blasphemer. If you have thought lustfully or looked lustfully, 
You're an adulterer. You're a sinner. You're guilty. Welcome to STSA, the happiest place to be every Sunday morning. <laughs> Who wants to invite a friend to church now? Look, we're not used to this. But did you know, actually, if you go to the roots of our church and our Christian faith, the idea of saying, I'm a sinner, like we never say I'm a sinner, but did you know in the rites of the church, we actually say I'm a sinner all the time. Did you know, for example, right now we just prayed the divine liturgy together and right after the sermon, we said the creed and then uh, before we begin, I turned around and I said, I am a sinner, forgive me. And you're supposed to say, I'm a sinner, absolve me. You say absolve to a priest, okay, but you can't absolve, you forgive. So you say, I'm a sinner. And did you know that actually when clergy greet one another, we always start, like, if I'm going to greet formally a bishop or a patriarch, I begin by saying, I've sinned for, absolve me. That's how I begin, like, even in an email, I've sinned, absolve me. Like, that's how you begin. I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. The problem is we say it in a routine way, but it's not meant to be a routine way. This is the same way that we say in church. Okay, you come to church and you say a thousand times, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. Our problem is we take it in a routine way of like, yeah, Lord, bless my day. Yeah, Lord, take care of my health. And Lord, have mercy. And we, no, 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 no. That's not how it's supposed to be. The people who wrote the hymns of the rites of the church ingrained this concept in here that I am a sinner, forgive me. I am a sinner, Lord, have mercy. Reminding ourselves constantly of our guilt. I'll tell you a funny story about that, by the way. One time, Pope Shenouda, okay, the previous patriarch, told us this story one time as a group of, of, of us sitting around, he told us this story about how there was a particular priest who greeted him and he said, I've sinned, your holiness, absolve me. And then he began to say what business he was trying to, like, you know, we need this, this, this. And he was kind of like complaining or giving him a little bit of a hard time. I've sinned, absolve me, but this, 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 and this. And he kept saying, I've sinned, absolve me, but this, this, and this. So the Pope, Pope Shenouda had a great sense of humor. He liked to razz people a little bit. So he said, okay, hold on. You said I have sinned. What sins have you done? And the priest, of course, was taken aback. So the priest said, standard answer, I've committed every sin, your holiness. Every sin. I'm the worst of all the sinners. I'm the worst. So the Pope said to him, okay, tell me one. Since you've committed so many, many to choose from. The guy was taken aback. Because the point, what I'm trying to make here is, I'm a sinner. is not something we're supposed to just say and move on. Something that we're supposed to, if I were to come to you and say, are you a sinner? We should all be aware of the fact that we are sinners. Now you say, why is that so important? Like it's kind of discouraging to always think about sin and sin and sin. This is important. Don't miss this. I need to know I'm a sinner. Why? Because if I don't know I'm a sinner, I won't see my tremendous need for a savior. The sick person needs to know they're sick. Why? So they appreciate the doctor. The drowning person needs to know they're drowning. Why? So when the lifeguard comes, they say, thank you. Please, I'm over here. And they cling to the lifeguard. But the guy who doesn't think he's drowning, the person who doesn't think they're sick, the person doesn't realize that they're guilty when they see the Savior walk by. That's why Romans chapter 7, verse 7, St. Paul says, the law, the law is not bad. The law that makes us feel bad is not bad. The law is good. He says, is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. The Old Testament, the law, makes us feel bad, but it's not, that doesn't mean we throw it away. We need to feel bad, not that we need to feel bad, but we need to know our need. And if the law never said coveting is wrong, you shall not covet, I wouldn't know that I needed a savior to save me from myself and from my sin. So the woman, guilty, and the law revealed it. 
The Pharisees, even though we hate their guts, they were right. She deserved death. Now, where the Pharisees were wrong is not that she was guilty. But where they were wrong is they thought the story stopped right there. They did the law and they stopped. And they didn't know that there was more than the law. The law says guilt and the law says guilt for all of us. But we know there's more to the story than the law. And that's where the love of Christ comes in. Resume the story. Verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So Jesus ignores their question and writes something on the ground. I'll tell you what what we think he wrote in a second. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw stone at her first. So what did Jesus do? Pharisee said, The law says she's guilty. You agree or disagree? He said, I agree. But the law also says that you're guilty. And the law says that she... Is with, is, has sin, law also says that you have sin, and you have sin, and you have sin. And what our tradition teaches us, okay, about when Jesus wrote on the ground, it's not written in the scripture, but this is what, what you know, what several people subscribe to this, and that Jesus stooped down on the ground and started writing. What was he writing? They say what he did is he started to write the names of the people who are standing around. Jim, Ed, Bill, Frank, whatever it may be. And next to each one, he started to write their sins. So Bill cheated on his wife last week. Frank stole from the IRS over there. Ed just talked bad about you when you weren't. And he started to write down their names. That's why he stands up and says, no problem. I agree. She's guilty. Whichever one of you is without sin, go ahead. You throw it first. All of a sudden, see, a minute ago they could have. But now their sin is written right there. So you see what love does? Love does not deny her guilt. Love does not say, no, she's not guilty. But love says there's more to the story. Yes, she's guilty. But the story doesn't end with her guilt because the next, love reveals God's grace. Love reveals the grace of God. Law said she has a speck in her eye. Love said, I know. And it's my job to help her get it out. I acknowledge that. But I'm here to help her, not to judge her. And you know the difference between grace and judgment. You know the difference between the law and love. And I'll show you. You do, you do both of them on a regular basis. I'll prove it to you. It's the difference between how you look at the sins of yourself versus the sins of others. So you're late to a meeting. You say what? A lot of traffic. Busy day. Not that big a deal. Someone else is late? A jerk. Don't respect my time. Don't respect me inconsiderate with you grace trying his best give him a break with that other person judgment when they said it those same words they were arrogant when you said it you were confident when they said it they were mean when you said it, you're just speaking the truth you're just being honest see how we, we do this all the time is that we know how to give grace to ourselves and we know how to judge others the story goes on verse 8 And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, that's again why we think that he wrote their sins. Those who were convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest to the last. Why the oldest got out of there first? Jesus went down, started writing oldest, like my list is going to be the longest, I'm out of here. Okay, the oldest is wise enough to say, I'm not sticking around to the end of the story right here. Like I got too much on the line. So the oldest got out and then everyone one by one, as they saw their names listed there, 
with their rocks in their hand to stone the lady. All of them all of a sudden realized that Jesus admitted she's guilty. So are you. And I'm not here to judge her, nor am I here to judge you. I'm here to help. Verse 9. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Now, I want you to think. I'm going to show you in just a second here. But again, I want us to go back in this story. This woman, dragged out of bed, horrible, earth swallowed me up, shame, 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 shame. And then here comes Jesus, a guy I never met before, a guy I never met me, just showed up out of nowhere. And he said a few words, and he wrote a few stuff, and all of a sudden, the people with the rocks about to stone me, all of a sudden, they disappear. And now it's just me and Jesus. Just me and him. What's she thinking? What's she feeling? Jesus speaks. Verse 10. And Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. He said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And the woman's thinking to herself, He got rid of all of them? Is he here to save my life? Or is he here the one who wants to kill me himself? Verse 11 answers the question. The woman in her darkest, 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 darkest moment, Jesus saved her from all the other people, and then he says this. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then right after this is where he says, I'm the light of the world. Jesus tells her, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to save you. Go and sin no more. And I'm telling you, maybe there's someone here today who is listening to this message that needs to hear these exact same words. Maybe someone comes here today and you find yourself in a dark place. A dark place. Darkness, fear, shame, guilt, whatever it may be. Some people are coming here today and you find yourself in a dark place and you're thinking to yourself, I'm guilty and you are guilty. I messed up and you did mess up. And you're thinking to yourself, if Jesus was here face to face with me, he probably would throw the first stone. He probably would judge me the first one. He says, uh-uh. Today you hear Jesus face to face with you. Face to face says, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. I do not condemn any one of you. In other words, you are not defined by your mistake. Yes, you made a mistake, but that is not the definition of you. No matter what anyone says, no matter what people around you tell you, you are not defined by your worst day in my eyes. I love you unconditionally. You are the beloved child of God. This is not Jesus to lay, this is Jesus to us. Because if he said it to this lady who was really, really, really guilty and did something really, really, really bad, then I know he says the same thing to every one of us. A couple weeks ago, uh, we, we, like the high school kids have been coming over to my house on Friday nights and we've been having a fantastic time and we talk about stuff and they are allowed to ask me any question, any question that you can imagine. And these high school kids are asking great questions. And a couple weeks ago, someone asked the question. They're saying, Father Anthony, you know, what's the church's opinion or what's our Christian opinion on people who do this sin or people who believe this or people who this? And I don't even care what the this is. My answer to them was very, very clear. We love them unconditionally. We love them unconditionally. What about people this? We love them unconditionally. What about that? We love them unconditionally. Why? Because God loves them unconditionally. And we're supposed to be his body. So whatever it is that fills in the blank, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't matter. It's unconditional love. Now, with that said, what he says is, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. He says, go and sin no more. So truth is truth and right is right. He's not excusing the sin. But notice the sequence. He doesn't say, go and sin no more, neither do I condemn you. That's a big difference. He says, I do not condemn you. I'm not here to judge you. 
I'm here to help you. And because of that, go and sin no more. So even his go and sin no more, we talked about this in Good Shepherd a couple weeks ago, his rod and his staff, they come for me. Even his rebuke is sweet because his rebuke is on the heels of love and acceptance and unconditional grace. Said another way, as blunt as I can say it, nothing can make God stop loving you. Did you know that? Nothing can make God stop loving you. Try and try and try as you might. Nothing can make God stop loving every single person on this planet. And I know that because if there's one person who deserved not to be loved, it was this lady. If there's one person who is like, no, stay away from her. She's caught in the very act. Like, leave her. Like, don't make her the poster boy of your, like, pick someone else who did a small sin. But she said, no, that's the one. Let me tell you why this is so important. Because I believe one of the greatest problems that we have today is insecurity. And I believe it at a spiritual level, but also at this level. And I've often said this, that anytime you find a behavior in your life that is unexplainable, why did I do that? Why did I snap there? Why did I say this? Why didn't I do this? Nine out of 10 times, the answer is an insecurity, an underlying insecurity. And I believe when it comes to our relationship with God, that's the majority of it. Feeling of shame, feeling of guilt, feeling of I'm not good enough, feeling of God could never bless me, feeling of God doesn't want to have anything to do with me. That's why told you all this before is that I believe in prayer cards okay something that I do is I write out prayers for people around me in the church and myself and my family and things like that and one of my prayers for my children okay this is what I say for each of them for Michael and for Lizzie I always pray this that they would be secure in your love for them and my love for them specifically me as a dad okay mom is important but I feel like the, the love of a dad so I want my kids to always know how much they're loved by you and how much they're loved by me and I'm telling you if those two things are in place 90% of the problems in the world, 90% of problems that we experience, knowing where we are there and also here with the key people in our lives, but we can only focus on this for right now, that security of knowing that we are loved unconditionally by Christ. That's the only way we can live free. That's the only way we can live as we were meant to live. Versus what's the opposite of that is what the devil likes to tell us. You know, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the devil and says he is the accuser of the brethren. You know why he's called the accuser? Because he likes to make you guess and doubt your, your security in Christ. So he likes to say things like, oh, God wants to bless your life. But I mean, that was until you, well, you know. And he likes to say things like, you really think God will bless you after that? Like, I'm not telling you, I'm just asking you. Like, do, do you think? Like, you really think your marriage can be blessed after that? You really think God can bless your kids after what you did? Do you really believe that God can use you in any way? And he's not telling us. He's just asking us the question to make us doubt, to make us question. And that's why I'm saying we need to be sure on the answer. Answer, I, as Christ says to this lady, number one, I'm a sinner. And he did not excuse her sin. I am a sinner. So when the devil says you're a sinner, I say, I know. <laughs> devil says you messed up. I agree. Devil says you're bad. Tell me something I don't know. I know that I'm a sinner. That's why I go to confession. That's why I repent daily. That's why I say, Lord, have mercy. I know I'm a sinner. But then the next thing, number two, Christ says to me, not just you're a sinner, but number two, I'm love, I'm grace. Not just your guilt, but I'm grace. And as long as I'm around, I do not condemn you and I do not allow anyone to condemn you. And then the third thing, we said the law reveals the guilt, law of Christ reveals our guilt, the love of Christ reveals God's grace. And third, we're gonna see the grace of God. So after he says, neither do I condemn you, verse 12, the light right here says, I am the light of the world. It's on the heels of that story. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The grace, I'm sorry, the light says what? 
Light reveals our hope. Law says you're guilty. Love says I'm not here to condemn you. Light says there's hope for you in the future. Think about it this way. Imagine someone caught stealing. Okay, so I stole $10,000, so I owe $10,000 to whatever. The law says I'm guilty. Law says you're guilty, you have to pay it back. And is that true or not true? Yes. If you steal $10,000, you have to pay it back. This is not judgmental. This is accurate. Love comes in and says, okay, grace, so you don't have to pay it back. Your debt is paid back. You don't have to pay it back anymore. Light is future-focused. And light says not only that you don't have to pay it back, but how about I offer you a job so you never have to steal ever again? Light is future-focused. Light says the hope that is ahead. And that's why in, in this verse where Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, some translations of Jesus' words add a little word in there. He says, go now and sin no more. And the word now is to emphasize the urgency of the matter, saying like, you're free. Your debt is paid. You've been forgiven. Don't walk in darkness anymore. Go. Like the image that's in my mind is someone who's in jail, who's on a death sentence, and he's just gonna sit there and rot in jail. And not only the gates open, but the guy comes out and says, go. And I have a future for you. And I'm going to give you a job. And I'm going to let you live free. Go. Why are you sitting here any longer? Like, leave. If you've been in darkness, if you've been in, 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 in that situation of guilt and shame, you don't have to stay there another second. Go now. Because there's better ahead. That's why, if you ask me to kind of summarize, okay, what the light of the world is all about, it's not just Christ. Christ first says, like I said, you're guilty. And you need a savior. Number two, I'm here to be that savior. I don't here to judge you. But then number three, I'm here to give you something ahead, not just to erase a behind, but to give you something future. Why? Because Jesus isn't here just to erase our sins. He's here to redeem them. Do you know the difference? Jesus isn't here to erase our sins. He's here to redeem them. You know what the word redeem means? Like sometimes we think of sins, like maybe you've seen this example. This is a bad example. Okay, where someone says like sin is like on a whiteboard and it's marks on a whiteboard and then you confess and repent and it's erased. I don't like that example because it gives the impression that the sin just goes into la-la land. Like, boop, there it is, it's gone because I don't know what happens when you erase it. It evaporates, I don't know exactly what happens. It disappears. That's not, that's not Christianity. Christianity is not that the sin disappears. Christianity is that the sin is traded in. Like a coupon that you redeem. Like if I give you a coupon to Chick-fil-A, you go to the Chick-fil-A and you take a little piece of paper that's worth nothing you give it to them, they give you a chicken nuggets. Because something that's worth a lot of money. So you redeem the coupon to get something back. Well, that's what it says right here. Jesus is our redeemer. He's here to take all of our old, take it, and not just make it disappear, but take it and use it to give us life, to trade it in for something of value. That's what he did for this lady. That's what he says to every one of us. You're in darkness, give me your darkness. You're in guilt and shame, give me your guilt and shame. You messed up, Bring it to me. Bring it to me. And I'm just not going to make it disappear. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to redeem it. And I'm going to take your light, your life of darkness, give you a life of light. Take your fear, give you courage. I'm going to take your shame, give you confidence. Because that's who he is. Why? Because John 8, 12, let's read this all together once again. All together. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
no matter what darkness you find yourself in today. Or you may say, I'm not finding myself in darkness today, but I promise you there'll come a point in time where you will find yourself in darkness. No matter what the darkness is, never forget that the light of the world is here with us. And he is alive. And as long as he's here, we don't have to walk in darkness. What we're gonna do is we're gonna bring him the light, bring him our life, bring him our darkness. And what he's gonna do, just like, our ki- just like the kids with the monsters, what he's gonna do when it's monsters and scary, what he's gonna do when it's so dark, he's just gonna simply flip a switch. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen a room so dark. I've never seen a room so dark that when you turn on the light, that the darkness can defeat the light. No matter how dark it is, no matter how big the darkness is, no matter how much darkness, how long darkness has been there, one light and it all goes away. And the same is true, not just in our rooms when we're kids, but also in our lives with the light of the world. Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time here today. We thank you that you are the light of the world, and that when we follow you, we no longer have to walk in darkness. I pray, Lord, that you would shine your light in each one of our lives, especially those who are coming here today, who have areas where there's darkness, areas, Lord, where we don't know what to do. We ask you, Lord, the light of the world, to shine in those areas and be glorified, Lord, in, in, in our lives. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.